Hello, is that on? Yeah. Grand. Well, yeah, we're in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 tonight, as it said. I got a bit of a choice, actually. Andrew came up and said um, you could do, like, just the context or look at Acts. And I said, oh, no, well, we'll do that. And we'll look at the first 11 verses. So I was like, and then he looked at it and thought, oh, that's quite a bit of take on there. But um, I do think the first 11 verses sort of is the context in a lot of ways, which sort of helps us tonight. Um, so one of, one of the great themes of um, teaching and uh, mentoring is that you always get to a point when you've, you've scaffolded something or, or helped somebody get as far as they can go, well, as far as you can take them. And now they have to essentially run with that knowledge or skill and give something a bit of a go on their own. And I'm sure you can also think of examples with, with your children, but it certainly happens in school a lot. That, you know, you, you think you've done everything you need to do. You've done the teaching. You've set something up as an activity. You've scaffolded exactly how to do it. Um, and then eventually you kind of have to sort of say, you know, off you go. And um, sometimes it just, just goes horribly wrong and they don't do anything that you've expected whatsoever. But um, I thought of a few examples. You know, when, as a child, when you learn to ride a bike, um, you know, the, that moment comes where you actually have to let go of the bike and you kind of wobble, will they, won't they sort of situation. Um, you just can't be sure until you've let go whether they're going to sort of sink or swim. Um, I was thinking of, you know, the baby bird in the nest when you watch like a, a nature documentary when they're on the edge and the mums at the bottom kind of call it or chirping to like jump and you're just not sure whether they can actually do it or not until you watch it. And, uh, and then and when you get older, you know, you leave university or, or college or whatever it is with all the information that you, you think you should need to be successful um, and you wait to see whether you've, you're kind of ready for that. And at some point, I'm sure we've all been in a situation where we've had a sink or swim moment and had a, somebody, some sort of mentor or a teacher in the wings sort of watching anxiously to see whether you were actually ready to shoulder the responsibility. And you can feel when you read First Timothy, the affection and the concern of a mentor, um, a real spiritual father figure as he writes to Timothy, uh, as Paul writes to Timothy. So he begins the letter by calling Timothy a true son, and he concludes the letter with the plea, O Timothy, God, what has been entrusted to your care. And so what I'm hoping to do this evening is introduce Timothy for the series. Um, we'll consider the context of where the letter fits into the early church and where Timothy himself is. And we'll have a look at the first 11 verses to establish just what a challenge um, Paul has placed this young man in at Ephesus. And we'll see just why this letter was so important and what hopefully we can carry forward today for ourselves. So we'll read the passage. I'll say a short word of prayer after that. 1 Timothy 1, 1-11. It says, Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these things and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, 
for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Let's pray as we look into it. Father God, I thank you just for the, the, this wonderful small letter in Scripture, Lord. In the, in the breadth of Scripture, Lord, it's not a huge chunk, Lord, but it, it provides so much wisdom and so much concern, Lord, of uh, um, a spiritual father figure speaking to this young man. And I pray, Lord, that as we look through this whole series, that you would speak to us, give us practical um, tips and, uh, and challenge us to take things away each week. Amen. So let's have a look. We're going to spend a bit of time building up the context and uh, getting to know Timothy a little bit. And then we'll delve into sort of two main points. What was the problem in Ephesus and when what was the solution in Ephesus? Sort of in summary, I guess, before we start going through all the practical bits each week. So who exactly is Timothy? Because his name is just everywhere in the New Testament, isn't it? Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. We don't know really for sure his conversion story, but the scripture across scripture gives us some idea of his background. So Timothy's dad's never mentioned as being a believer. Um, We just don't really know his story. But Paul talks about the faith of Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, at the beginning of 2 Timothy. So it's clear that there's this faithful upbringing in his life and the witness of these godly women has helped Timothy to grow into a young man of God himself. And we're told in 2 Timothy that Timothy studied the Old Testament in his childhood and came to understand for himself who Jesus is based on his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures as well. So all of this information makes it likely that Grand Lois and Mam Eunice were converted during Paul's first missionary journey about 46 AD which gives time for a young Timothy to absorb the truth and put his faith in Jesus himself, either at the same time or at some point before Paul comes back around to Lystra on his second missionary journey. And in Acts 16, we have our first real practical introduction to Timothy in Scripture. So I've got a map to show. There's a map which should appear in a moment. And the map shows, yeah, it might not be that clear to see from there, but it shows obviously Syria, Cyprus, and then you've got what is modern-day Turkey, which is labelled Asia and Galatia, and then Greece to the west. So let's read from Acts 16, because a few of the places that are on there will pop up. Acts 16, 1 to 5 says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium, which you can see up there, sort of in the middle of Turkey, um, spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. You can see there that Timothy was well spoken of in this region around Derby, Lystra and Iconium. He isn't just a Christian who kind of happened to have some spare time on his hands, so Paul thought, oh, well, I'll take him along to give us a hand. So through his service and his early ministry, Timothy's developed a good reputation in what looks like a really small place on the map, but the area between Lystra and Iconium on there is 20 miles, roughly. So to give that a little bit of perspective, you can imagine a young person here in Calvary having an impact around the northeast and having a good reputation among churches in different places. And it says a lot about the young Timothy, because 20 miles might seem like just a commute to us, but obviously then 20, days is a, a day of 20 miles sorry, is a day's journey. So it must have been 
a good reputation, well, it's no small thing. And as we see, Paul sees that Timothy's gifted and invites him to travel with him while he's still a young man. And you can sort of think about how good an education in ministry that must have been. Instead of going to Bible college, he's invited on one of Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, must have been an amazing time. But let's not be fooled into thinking that that would have been an easy decision for Timothy. Because on Paul's first missionary journey, the one that I was mentioning before, Paul was stoned at Lystra until he appeared dead in Acts 14. So in terms of a young man's view of that, you know, it's hard to imagine looking at Paul as a spiritual father figure and thinking, yes, that's, that's what I want for my life. I want to follow in those footsteps. In fact, Paul didn't shy away from telling people to do that. They should believe, the believers should expect the same thing. And yet, despite the persecutions that were always there as a threat, Timothy's family remained in that city. And they remained faithfully bringing Timothy up, despite all the risks and all of the fears and all the costs that following Jesus brought. He was surrounded by hostility, and yet he was ready to risk his life with Paul to go and further the gospel elsewhere. And I thought to myself, there's already a challenge just in that, which is not one of the ones I'm coming to tonight, but definitely a young man ready to step out in faith and put everything on the line. Now, after we're introduced to Timothy and Acts, like we've looked at there, things just sort of explode from across the New Testament, and his name's just sort of scattered across various letters and places as he accompanies Paul over the years on his second and third journeys. Now, Paul gives Timothy some important works to do, calling him not only his dearly loved son, but also a brother, also a companion of his labours, and also a man of God. And Paul gives him responsibilities to go to specific churches to, uh, to strengthen their teaching, and he sends him to go and prepare churches for his coming too. And there's way more we could cover chronologically in terms of where Timothy pops up, but um, let's home in on where we are for this letter. So at this point... In time for First Timothy, scholars suggest it's probably about 12 years after they first met. And Paul's taught Timothy the essentials and he's modelled good leadership to him. And now Paul's leaving Timothy with authority and a, lead, a teaching responsibility for the church in Ephesus, which you can also see on the map uh, on the west side of Turkey there. Now they've got a notorious problem, as we've seen, with false teaching there, which makes it not an easy place to go. So Paul writes First Timothy to encourage his son in the faith, a letter from like an anxious mentor, um, keen to see his younger brother in Christ succeed. And I'm sure Paul felt that in an ideal world, it would have been lovely to put Timothy in a church where it was, you know, full of committed believers who really stuck to the gospel, who, you know, had organized themselves really nicely. Maybe they had a good worship team, I don't know. But um, people who got along together well and, and just furthered the gospel in their community. But it's not the church that Timothy is being left with. Paul must have trusted him, he shows confidence in him by giving him this responsibility, but just from reading even just the first bit, you can't help but notice the style of writing and the concern and the tone of anxiousness in what Paul is seeing. There's like a personal touch to it. And Paul uses the letter to give Timothy as much practical advice and wisdom as possible. He fills the letter with all of those things, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But moving to the meat of the passage, that's enough context, and consider the warning of Scripture to us today. Let's think about what the problem was in Ephesus that Timothy was going to deal with. So a short bit of context for you here. Ephesus is one of the most important cities in the world at the time. It was a Greek city, but it fell, as I've said, in modern-day Turkey on its west coast. It was essentially a hub of trade. It was on the coast. It had as many as 250,000 residents at the time, I'm told. Um, which sounds like a decent-sized city today, but then would have been like, you know, London, Tokyo, 
absolutely massive, 250,000 people living there in the Roman Empire. And the second slide I've got, which is a nice photo, um, will show you, I'll give it a moment, um, yeah, that's it, will give you a feel for what's left of it today. It's very well preserved, and you can still walk the streets that Timothy would have walked if you go there today. Not that I've been, but I would like to go. Um, Ephesus was host famously to the world's famous temple of Artemis, or Diana to the Romans, she was called, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And the city was just built on this cult of this uh, goddess Artemis. They had her on coins, so people were spending money with that figure on it. Um, there were businesses made out of making little Artemises that you could take home with you. She had um, supposedly had fertility powers, so there was ritual prostitution in the temple, and festivals and games were regularly held in her honour. It was a city that was really proud to be centred on pagan worship. And so you can see immediately why when Paul started his ministry there, preaching liberty from idols and liberty from sin and faith in Christ alone, why it caused a bit of a stir. But with all that opposition, the church did take root and became a really important centre for Paul. It was an accessible city. It could reach out by sea and inland. And Paul spent a lot of time there, um, both ministering himself, but also equipping the church to do great things when he wasn't there too. Here's how Acts chapter 10 explains his time there. Acts chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. I appreciate I'm jumping around if you're trying to keep up. Acts 10, 8 to 10 says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. And so for all of the Jews and Greeks in Asia to hear about Jesus, Paul would have needed somewhere like Ephesus to call it as a bit of a base to work from. And so in time we have this young, this thriving church in an enormous cultural center with great opposition, but this amazing opportunity as well. It's some responsibility for Timothy to be leading a, taking a leading role in a church like this one. And I guess until I actually looked into and understood the scale of the city and its massive temples and its entrenched pagan beliefs, I didn't quite realize what Timothy was, was in for. Um, and it's no other wonder that Paul's concerned because I just thought I'd be past myself for him, um, leaving him in charge. Well, not just in charge, but as a leading position there. But what's worse as we start looking in the passage is that Paul's concern isn't the threat from the outside of the church. It's the threat from within the church that's the problem. And that's where we certainly find where you can be challenged to dear. You notice that Paul doesn't see anywhere in there, you know, watch out for all of the dodgy pagans and their idols. He actually starts off in verse 3 with, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It's an in-house teaching problem that he's dealing with, not an out-of-house teaching problem. So what are the false doctrines and what are the myths and endless genealogies that he's thinking about? I decided to look up a, a, a fancy Greek manuscript while I was on, just to check the language and what he actually says. And um, it basically says, warn men not to teach other doctrines. It's not specifically the word false, um, and we'll see why it's significant that it's not other doctrines um, as we go along. So it's clear there was a problem with extra teaching going on. But how was the church in Ephesus supposed to know what was officially good teaching and what was officially other teaching to be avoided? And how was Timothy meant to deal with the problem? 
Because the answer is so important to understand and there's still the schisms and divides we've still got in the church today. The problem with other doctrines is obvious. They take glory away from God and put some of it on man to play a part in his salvation story. Rome, for example, holds doctrines like Mary being co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix, which is a bit of a mouthful, which basically means that Mary has a role to play in helping Jesus to save souls. Catholic Church still holds that Mary lived a sinless life and stands with Jesus in mediating for sinners as their spiritual mother. So how are we, or how are the people in Ephesus supposed to check that kind of thing out when people in authority see it? We might say it's easy for us, we've got the Bible and the New Testament, but how were the Ephesians meant to check out the teachings in their day when they didn't have a completely finished and organised Bible? What's the difference between, say, the authority of a Pope and the authority Timothy was going to hold in Ephesus? Why would anybody listen to him? To sort it out. Here's an inspiring sounding quote for you, a second thing to think about. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace we are saved after all we can do. You might have noticed the end was quite shocking. It comes from the Book of Mormon, followed by 16.5 million people. It sounds like scripture. But what was that on the end there? It's by grace we are saved after all we can do. And when you actually hear the twist and the other doctrine that's in there, it should provoke a reaction in us. And we might think it's easy for us to refute today. But how was Timothy supposed to deal with something like that in the Ephesian church? Has really God given Timothy the information that he needed? Has he given him the tools that he needed to sort this stuff out? Does he actually have the authority to confront false teaching? And can we be sure that what we have in here today when this comes up for us in the Bible outlines all of the stuff that we need. It's quite a lot of questions. Well, the good news is even without the scriptures being fully organized at the time, God had given Timothy a precedent for teaching. So going back to the passage we looked at in Acts before, the same passage where we were introduced to Timothy in Acts 16, verses 4 and 5 say this. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So this is the authority that the early church was basing their teaching on. The apostles, those people who followed Jesus, they were witnesses of his ministry. They are the ones who taught the church initially the truths of gospel, of the gospel, sorry, and of God. You might know Acts 2.42 famously tells us as well that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayer. But why do they do it? Why is it that the apostles' teaching holds authority? Well, listen to the words of Jesus to them at the end of Matthew 28. Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, this is the important bit, to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So here we have the promise of Jesus to his disciples, that all authority is his, not theirs. Not only that, but he commands them, the apostles, to go and make disciples now under his authority. And they're told to teach everything Jesus commanded them. So Jesus' commission and then the revolution that these leaders uh, initially caused is enough to persuade me that their words had all of the power and authority through Christ that was needed for us and we could look further at Paul's own authority too but I think that would detract from the key point 
So let's bring it back to Timothy. Paul's warning to allow no other doctrine. And I'm sure that Timothy, based on what we've seen across the scriptures there, would understand that to mean, in simple, teach nothing, nothing. No doctrine, no tweak, no hidden knowledge, no secret clubs, nothing except the truth that you received from the apostolic teaching, the apostles, the disciples. The teaching of those who were witnesses of Christ's ministry. If it's new and it's somebody else's idea, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Don't buy it, Timothy. There's nothing hidden that needs to be rediscovered later. There's nothing additional that God might drop in later as he progressively reveals a bit more and a bit more. Paul says nothing, no other doctrine. Not just false doctrines, no other doctrine. And for us today, we're blessed to have all of the access to the written tradition. We've kind of got more of a blessing than what Timothy had in his hands at the time. And we have the apostles' words and teachings meticulously written and translated with countless manuscripts from the time to cross-reference. And if it isn't clear to you that it's in here, don't let anybody tell you that it's true. And it sounds simple, doesn't it, until a little voice comes along, and it might come in your head or it might come from a person. You know, did God really say that bit, though? Or maybe it's, but have you heard this guy preach on it? He's just so inspiring when he speaks on that. Or it might be, have you seen how quickly this church is growing or this movement is growing? God just must be at work for that to be happening. We have the same warning to check these things against, to give one another, to give the world, as Paul gave Timothy. And I know I'm reluctant to sound like a broken record when the, the passage get, brings out that word, which is to know the word of God and be diligent and study it. But how else can we actually address the problem that was in Ephesus if we don't do the homework? Now, as for the second issue, the myths and the endless genealogies, like Paul doesn't give us any specific clues in the passage of what he was referring to. There's loads of theories about, um, you might have a very strong opinion already. Some people focus on Gnosticism the teaching of hidden or secret knowledge that needed to be revealed. And if this is the case, that would mean there was new myths and traditions being added into the words to alter its meaning. Some think it's a Jewish problem, people celebrating their tradition and their ancestry and kind of using that to blow themselves up and make themselves look more important. And there's plenty more ideas that you can find, but again, it doesn't affect the point really. And um, incidentally, me speculating about what that might be sort of is contradictory to what I'm about to say, so I'm not going to speculate about it. Um, because the point is straightforward. Any fabricated tale, any superstitious speculation or any imagination of the heart that doesn't line up with what Scripture says is dangerous to the local church. As all forms of false teaching give breathing space to some sort of idea that takes our eyes off Jesus onto something else, quite often ourselves. And there's things that absorb the attention of the church and take the church's focus away from its great commission. These are the things that make us ineffective as a church. They're the things that stop us from speaking to people or giving the gospel out, which is by faith and not by knowledge or not by ancestry or any other work that we can possibly think of. Look at the one in verses 6 and 7. It says, Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. I love how clear that actually is. Is it's in such simple language, isn't it? They don't know what they're talking about or what they're so confidently affirm. It's possible for us to think of ourselves as wise and knowledgeable and yet find that we're just resorted to meaningless talk. It's also possible to study and spend time thinking about the scriptures but get lost 
in mindless speculations of what it might mean or what it could mean, rather than how it actually speaks to us and changes our lives. So let's hold that challenge in focus as I look at the kind of second, well, the third main point this evening before we conclude, which is what was the solution that Paul gives in Ephesus? What is he telling Timothy to do from the offset? So you could be forgiven for thinking when you get to sort of verse 8 of what I read today that it's kind of a detour. It's not... Um, but we'll need to follow the argument through to see why. Let's read from verse 8 just to recap it. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So Paul starts his response to these issues in Ephesus with the words, we know the law is good if one uses it properly. And in Greek, it says the law is good if we use it lawfully. I like how it just sort of repeats. The law is only good if we use it lawfully. There is a correct way to use the scripture, and there is a correct way to focus on it. And it seems clear to me that its primary function is to be practical. What good does the information and the knowledge do if it doesn't change our lives? And in what way is God glorified by preaching and teaching of his word if people aren't impacted by it and if it doesn't make a difference? And that's why Paul follows up the statement by saying, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. And he gives us that long list afterwards. And you might be reminded of Jesus' words um, because he says something very similar in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And he says in Mark 2, 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus, the word of God himself, and the words that we find in the law and the scriptures, they don't serve a purpose for the righteous, but sinners. We know that the religious leaders in Jesus' day missed the point. We know that Jesus wasn't really saying to them that they didn't need the gospel. Rather, the whole point and the whole thrust of the law was to show them their sinful nature and hold up a mirror. So by reading the words of God, every sinner can see their great sin. You were supposed to read this and see our, need of, well, see our filthy rags before God. We read it and see that we're desperately in need of a mighty saviour. And so I think the, the immediate interpretation of Paul's list of rebels and lawbreakers and sinners is that we all see ourselves in there. And therefore the lawful use of the scriptures is to still call us to repentance and faith in Jesus. And the list Paul uses is extensive, isn't it, when you read through it? Um, it covers pretty much the Ten Commandments on its own. And if you weren't feeling condemned by any of that, it sort of sweeps us up in the verse, um, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. And if I traipse through Scripture and find countless passages um, of why I still need continued grace every day. So why does he bring us that big, long list? And why does it, it sort of, at first, you might think it brings a bit of a sense of doom and gloom to the passage. Is it a stick to beat us with? Well, no, I don't think so. Um, this list of sinful behaviours is a reminder once again to the church in Ephesus of the core of the gospel. Here, Paul says, this is what you've been saved from. Don't forget it. Do we still see these behaviours at work in our culture? Do we still see these behaviours at work in our own hearts today? Of course, it's a tragic list, but unless you see it, what good is the glorious gospel that he's talking about? It's not a glorious gospel unless it plumbs the absolute depths of human sin to rescue the ungodly. And for Timothy, I think, it's a call to keep the church focused 
on the glorious gospel. It's a reminder that they've been saved from these things in that long list for a purpose. And that purpose isn't to speculate. It's not a purpose to tell fables or get caught up in other teachings that other new people might be coming along and bringing. It's to stay true to what the apostles passed on to them. To stay strong in the things they've been taught and let the gospel continue to change their lives to become more like Christ. And so I'm re-emphasizing, I guess, the point from before, which is if the teaching of God's word is impractical, if there's nothing to get hold of that steers us away from the behaviors that have been listed there and away from mindless speculating, if it isn't centered on the glorious gospel, and it isn't worth turning up to listen to, really, is it? It's not worth the paper that it's written on that it's brought with. If somebody brings a message that doesn't have an impact then what they've done is they've wanted to be a teacher of the law in verse 7, but not knowing what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And as if Paul needed to just bring the clarity to that point, he left us those familiar words in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, when he said, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's it with the Bible. It's all useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Very practical words, aren't they? It's also all there to equip the saints for the good works God's prepared. It's not useful for speculating, mixing in with fables, as so many denominations under the banner of Christianity have done. So how do we make sure to pull the point together that we apply the solution for Timothy and the Ephesian church to ourselves today? I think when I was looking through it, it was verse 5 that jumped out and gave us three safeguards to check our hearts when reading and interpreting Scripture. So verse 5 in our passage tonight said, The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's only by striving for those three things in verse 5 that we can avoid falling into the pitfalls that are laid out here. Pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. They might be hard to measure, but are we opening the word looking for it to tell us something specific sometimes? Perhaps at times we go looking for an answer that we want to a difficult question without really letting scripture speak speak plainly for itself. I was trying to imagine how that might apply to me. I was thinking, how many times do I go and Google something like, why is this person wrong about this issue? Or I might search Bible verses that say, and then just sort of see what comes up because I'm kind of looking to prove a point to myself. I might find something useful by doing that, I might not. But there's a risk there that I'm looking to be proven right by the scripture um, rather than actually reading it properly in context and allowing it to speak. And that would reveal a heart issue. Do I have a pure heart when I'm coming to it? And I think misapplying scripture is easy, but it'll always explore one of those three key ingredients is missing. Anyone without a sincere faith has got no need to apply it correctly because they have never really truly bowed the knee before Christ. Anyone without a good conscience is likely to be blown by the wind into sin. And perhaps they would twist the uh, scriptures to suit their behavior. Anyone without a pure heart, and this is perhaps the real danger for the church today, might use scripture selfishly to win an argument or seem clever rather than correctly handle it. But if we've got those three things understood and in check, I think we'll know how to study the word of God without slipping into meaningless talk. And so as we conclude this evening, I turn to the very end of the passage in verse 11. Paul says of all these issues that everything we do should conform to the gospel concerning the glory of the best blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And Paul says, doesn't he, of the glorious gospel, which he entrusted to me. 
We talk regularly, I'm sure, in groups and study groups and in teaching of the responsibility to share the gospel. I definitely find for me that the profoundness of that sometimes lost. That the God who sees I'm my sin, sees the lack of a pure heart, sees the lack of a good conscience so much of the time, and our weaknesses not only rescues me and you if you've trusted in Christ this evening, but entrusts the care of the gospel to me, which is just crazy. I would leave that in our hands. Um, we find it's been placed in Paul's care. Paul has placed it in Timothy's care. Timothy's placed it in the care of the Ephesian church. And generation by generation from there, uh, logic follows that through faithful witness, it's been handled sincerely and passed down to us. I was kind of gripped by the idea that there's this faithful line of witness that connects person to person, you all the way back to Jesus himself. And along the way, millions of people have tried to distort it or, or change what it says or dilute it or add fables and myths and genealogies and all sorts of things in it. But all the way, there's been threads of faithfulness that have passed the torch in all of its glory, that true message, until someone told you the unedited truth of God's words, the unedited truth of Jesus' words to his disciples. What a terrible mistake it must be to corrupt those words and to fail to commit to the calling to, be, uh, to, to guard what has been entrusted to us. And as Paul puts this letter out to his true son in the faith, who he has great concern for, he knows that the foundation of his successful ministry in Ephesus is going to be built on getting the basics of sound teaching right. And we'll get the spiritual gifts We'll get how to deal with conflicts in the book. It'll tell us about the qualifications for elders and deacons. It'll tell us how to support widows, and it'll tell us how to instruct the wealthy. But First Timothy begins where Paul knows every church should begin, with a solid and glorious gospel in its fullness. And so I'll end the letter where Paul ends this letter at the very end, which is a little bit of a spoiler, and when he kind of hammers that message home. The very end of First Timothy, I kind of prefer the wording in the New King James, so you have to forgive us. But he says, O Timothy, and you can let me interject here and say, O your name, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that as we've seen in this letter, there's so much wisdom contained, Lord, and, and yet there's such a personal touch. And we know that that's written by um, the guiding of your spirit, Lord, that we should hear the concern of a mentor, or we should hear the concern, the anxiousness of Paul, that this, that this glorious gospel, would, that which has been entrusted to Timothy's care and has been entrusted to our care, might be guarded and might be shared in all of its fullness. I pray, Lord, that... Um, that would be the message that rings clear tonight, Lord, that we would, each of us, test ourselves in those three ways, Lord, have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, Lord. And that if we find ourselves wanting in any of those areas, if we find ourselves perhaps using Scripture selfishly, trying to blow ourselves up to look clever, Lord, I pray that you would um, challenge us in those areas, Lord, help us to seek um, a pure heart, Lord, in all of these matters. And I pray, Lord, as we go from this place and continue this series of studies, that you would speak each week, in the different, different, uh, difficult and different practical matters of our lives. I say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.